Welcome to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, I am your host. My name is Dan Thoreau, and today I am especially excited because I am being joined by an actual historian. Uh, welcome, Patrick Rail. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Patrick, I've uh, followed your work with uh, a lot of appreciation for quite some time now. You write the blog Ludica on BoardGameGeek. Is that where it's hosted? That's correct. And you are also a professor at, is it uh, Bowdoin College? Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. That's right. Yeah, I'm going on about 25 years there, which is hard to imagine, but um, it's been a, a, a great place to work and a very supportive institution for the kind of work I do. Why don't we have you introduce a little bit about that work? Because it's going to be pretty relevant, I feel, to our topic today. Um, for instance, I, I believe fairly recently, within the last five years or so, uh, you published a book entitled 88 Years, The Long Death of Slavery in the United States. Is that the sort of work you're referring to? Yes, as well as the game work. So uh, my research, research specialization is African-American history. Uh, I did my doctoral research at University of California at Berkeley. Um, back in the 90s, I finished up and um, my specialty there was African American history. And particularly, I was interested in the tradition of public protest forged by free African Americans in the northern states in the decades before the Civil War. Um, this is really the foundations of the modern black protest tradition. Um, but at that phase, um, it was not particularly well understood or appreciated. So uh, I began in that field. And then in trying to understand how those African Americans, those free people of color uh, worked against slavery, that got me into some broader questions about how slavery actually ended in the United States. The premise of 88 years uh, begins from the recognition that the United States actually began ending slavery in 1777 when Vermont mm. wrote it out of its state constitution. Sure. And that process didn't end until 1865. So the book is about the uh, two-step process of ending slavery in the United States. For me, I come from a background, um, my degree is in late antiquity. So I'm, I'm much more familiar with ancient forms of slavery. You recently, for instance, had a debate about the, <laughs> that, uh, I think you called it the oppression Olympics, um, which is, you know, the, I remember as a, as a kid, my mom said that I had to stop whining because people in the Holocaust had had it worse. I, and I, I think maybe that's sort of what you're referring to that when, when it comes to comparing suffering, there's no way to do it without being insensitive, is there? That seems right. I mean, I, that phrase came up in a um, <clears throat> discussion uh, on BoardGameGeek. Um, and essentially, my claim is that the New World slavery or Atlantic slavery, the form pioneered by Europeans from the 15th century on, has had a particularly profound impact on the modern world. Um, some came back and, and responded that, well, you know, this form of slavery was terrible and that form of slavery is terrible. And um, yeah, those aren't conversations I find particularly useful because we can measure oppression in so many different ways. And usually, it, it as you suggest, it winds up that uh, 
some are slighted. Um, and that's not really the direction that I would want to take these conversations. I think it's more important simply to note that modern slavery is obviously going to have a greater impact on the modern world than say ancient slavery or Native American slavery or the other forms that have existed. Um, there are peculiar uh, qualities to modern slavery that uh, I think we can't neglect, like its relationship to the development of capitalism, for example. Mm. So that's what that was about. So instead of taking uh, positions in this oppression Olympics, could you give us some sense for if if now I have I, I of course uh, have read quite a bit about the triangle trade and slavery uh, in the Atlantic. I don't want to belabor it too much, but if somebody is approaching this and they have that sort of question, in what way is the Atlantic slave trade distinct? from, say, ancient slavery, something that I would know a little bit more about. Um, how would you answer that for us and maybe summed up, uh, not to play the oppression Olympics, but just right. to give us a sense for what makes it so unique to our time? Yeah. So the in the, in the, in the Western world, um, slavery and uh, in, in, in Europe, slavery had pretty much declined. There was no law of slavery in England, for example, when England began the slave trade. Um, and so when slavery reemerges, it reemerges under a particular set of historical circumstances, which is the expansion of Europe uh, into Africa, Asia, and particularly the Western Hemisphere. So slavery became the main source of labor for the colonies that Europeans established. The success of those colonies wound up generating the capital or some of the capital that then went on to create the Industrial Revolution and indeed the modern world. So the forms of slavery that were practiced in the Atlantic world from the 16th century on until their end in 1888 when Brazil abolishes slavery, um, those forms are particularly implicated in the formation of the modern world notions of property rights, for example, uh, emerged with uh, sort of the opposite of the freedom to own property was the compulsion to be someone else's property. Mm, okay. These were not necessarily contradictions in other forms of slavery. Um, the world has seen many things that we moderns would label slavery. For example, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, before the slave trade, uh, one might become a pawn of another because they need the protection of a powerful patron. Um, so there are many things that we label slavery that aren't necessarily the chattel principle that is usually associated with Atlantic slavery. All this means that key categories, property, liberty, rights, fundamental concepts in the Western lexicon of ideas and, and legal principles were really built on an understanding of slavery. Um, it's sort of this dialectical process where freedom means something different in a world where some people absolutely lack any freedom whatsoever. That's the principle that I'm thinking about. Okay. So when you say something like a uh, pawnship, are you referring to, for example, uh, is it called a uh, panyarang? I'm in, not uh, familiar with that specific phrase, but it's, it's, it sounds like that's uh, on the right track. So something like um, hostage taking in African 
uh, yes. communities. Yes, there were, there were in in um, the pre atlantic slave trade world or in other forms of slavery there were many ways of becoming uh uh claimed by another um yes it could be you could be uh, a captive taken in war that's the classic instance mm -hmm. um or it could be that you are in debt to another um financially or otherwise. And so you subject yourself to the will of another. You become um, the pawn of another. Uh, court eunuchs in the um, Mediterranean world were often enslaved people. So and, and they could have the ears of uh, emperors and sultans. So some of these enslaved people could become very, very powerful. The Mamluk slave armies of Egypt could make or break empires. Um, so I'm not saying that, I, I, I guess the point here is that there's a very, very, when we're thinking about historical slavery, there's a very, very broad range of practices, a broad range of ways that people could become enslaved. In the Atlantic model, it's much more about the chattel principle, mm -hmm. the notion that there's a human who is sold as a piece of property in a um, mercantile exchange, and then that person is owned as property and treated as property, having absolutely no rights in law. I'm just thinking still about the <clears throat> ancient slavery and the kind that um, that, that you spoke of. Um, in, in Roman law, for example, um, enslaved people might have uh, a right to a peculum or a small amount of property that they owned. They might uh, legally have um, access to forms of legal emancipation. These were the things that tended to not appear uh, as frequently. They were sometimes there in Atlantic slavery, but by and large, Atlantic slavery is, is a, a, a really reductive form of slavery that turns people into things, into commodities in a capitalist or proto-capitalist economy. So you've mentioned that not only do you work in examining Atlantic slavery, but you also work in games. So uh, I, I feel as though to an observer that might seem like a peculiar connection. So how can you help us untangle this chicken-egg scenario? Sure. It's uh, a great question. Um, a lot of my movement in recent years to combine history and games is about bringing together um, you know, two, two parts of myself that have long not easily coexisted. Um, I've been interested in games since I was in high school in the, in the 70s. And um, um, like many other gamers of that era, sort of went underground in college and graduate school, and then you start a family. And uh, when I popped back out and became ready for games again, the Eurogame revolution had transpired. Mm. And uh, that was extraordinary just to, 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 to see what those designers like Knizia and Seyfarth and those folks, what they did with mechanics and what they made possible with game mechanics is really extraordinary. So uh, all of a sudden I'm playing new games again and thinking about history as I always have um, and getting interested in history games as I've always been interested in. And at some point I began wondering if I couldn't merge my two selves into, uh, into one that might be greater than the sum of its parts, one hopes. Um, and that's how it came about. Um, the thing about games uh, is that they're basically, I'm thinking about them as another form of media representation. So I've long 
thought about historical films, like feature films that Hollywood would make, like mm -hmm. The Patriot or Gangs of New York, and thought about them as representations of history. I've taught courses in historical film and teach my students about how we might become more thoughtful, more critical consumers of the popular history that we see. And so it wasn't too tough to just slide a lot of that interest over into the realm of historically themed games. Uh, games are a different medium, um, but most of these media operate on certain kinds of principles of representation. So the fun part of this is sort of seeing what kinds of tools we can bring to the study of historically themed games um, to help us understand how they uh, work to represent the past. It's sort of like films, but in some ways it's not like films in really interesting ways. What was the genesis? I, I almost, I want to ask about three genesis. Um, what was your genesis in playing games, your interest in Atlantic slavery? And was there any particular precipitating event that you realized, wow, these could really merge together. Um, you know, playing, was it playing Catan, for instance? Um, right. You know, what was it for you? What, what was the genesis of these three ideas for you? Well, the, um, my interest in, in historical slavery and, and uh, uh, anti-slavery has um, really just come out of my longstanding political values and concerns that I've had for, for a long, long time. And I've been fortunate and, and blessed to be able to make a career thinking about um, thinking about things that I think matter. Um, all history matters, but you know these are histories that that have shaped problems that we confront today. So to be able to spend time thinking about those questions, to help students and coach students in thinking about them um, has just been an enormous gift. And um, so I'm very grateful to a place like Bowdoin for letting me do that. Um, over time, as I've, I've been in the classroom for about 25 years now, always seeking ways to get students thinking about history, the history that I cover, uh, and the way history is represented. So, um, as I said, I've, I've taught on film before, um, and so it seemed like possible that maybe games could do this work. Um, the games that actually inspired this that's interesting. Uh, my my good friend Mark Lehman steered me toward a game called uh, Colonial Europe's Empires Overseas, and I think that was the game that I played that first led me to think I could teach a course on this. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking around, and there were other games like in that sort of you know expand exploit model. Um, but then there were others that came up. Uh, a game like Catan has a really interesting relationship to these questions because it's pretty abstract, mm -hmm. um, yet it still draws attention from people who are thinking about the history of colonialism. Um, Stephen Salida wrote about Catan in, in a, a, an important book that he wrote um, comparing Native American uh, issues uh, and history with uh, the history of the Palestinians. Uh, so this is games have have gotten serious play. They've gotten serious attention by cultural critics and historians and new media scholars. A lot of that attention was paid to video games. So board games are, I think, are kind of catching up to new media studies and, and uh, video game studies in a lot of ways. Um, and then I found a game called Freedom: The Underground Railroad by Academy Games and Daniel Mayer. And, and that sort of flipped the script on the um, 
on, on, on the expand and colonize narrative. Right. Um, and so that was a game that was that really opened my eyes about uh, how slavery, the different ways that slavery could be represented in games. Your most recent contribution is that you have created a graph that can help us categorize board games along a couple of axes to describe how they are engaging with the topic of slavery. Could you describe that graph for us? Maybe paint a uh, word picture. Sure. I will give it a try anyway. So let's think of um, uh, a horizontal x-axis and a vertical Um, y-axis. On the x-axis, that horizontal axis, uh, on the left, let's imagine games that sort of slavery is there, but it's hidden. So... um, it's a game where slavery sort of must be present in some way. It is has to be part and parcel of the history that's being represented. Yet the game itself doesn't seem to do anything to acknowledge that slavery might be present there. And I'll withhold on the examples until you're ready. On the other extreme would be a game that loudly declares that it is about slavery in some fashion. You know, there's no mistaking, uh, there's no mistaking the presence of slavery in that game. That's the x-axis, the horizontal axis, from not really mentioning slavery to loudly saying the game is about slavery. Yeah. The y-axis is um, what we might think of as the effective axis, or the axis that tells us uh, about values and 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 how a game approaches slavery. So. Uh, on the very top of this would be games that loudly proclaim that they are anti-slavery, where slavery is clearly something that is not posed uh, as a good. On the other extreme would be games where playing slavery um, is not associated with the negative, where playing slavery might actually be rewarded. Uh, So, that's what we've got. We've got the possibility that a game could not really acknowledge slavery and yet be st- still hate slavery. Um, or, you know, so we've got these various combinations. Uh, and I think that these are not either ors. That's why we have these ranges. There are different games are positioned in different places on this X, Y axis. You gave plenty of examples, and I, I, I'll link to your video uh, when this goes live, because I think you gave some tremendous examples. Why don't you uh, tell us where some games uh, that our listeners would recognize, where they would fall on this graph? Sure. The best place to start would be with a game like Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico, it, as you know, it's a game that a lot of people know about. It's very familiar. It's one of the iconic Euro games on the top of Board Game Geek's list for a long, long time. And Puerto Rico, the back uh, box explains that Puerto Rico is set about 50 years after Columbus, quote, discovered um, uh, the Bahamas, right? So we'd be talking here of like the 1540s. And it's a game where players are uh, establishing plantations that grow crops like indigo, corn, tobacco, coffee, uh, sugar. I think that's it. Um, And it's 
there are buildings that help you produce these goods. And But in order to get these to generate anything, they have to be filled with what the game calls colonists, which are represented by little brown disks. And those are disks that Seyfarth used in previous designs. I don't think he chose brown disks for right. Puerto Rico. Right, which um, I think is a fairly common uh, misunderstanding. I, yeah. I think a lot of intent gets attributed to him with those discs. Which raises an interesting question about sort of intent versus non-intent, you know, that sure. we could pick up later. But uh, so so Puerto Rico was a game that kind of has to be about slavery. Like if you're talking about the middle of the 16th century growing products in the West Indies, you're pretty much talking about slavery. It could be uh, the indentured servitude of, of, of Europeans, but... Um, that's, you know, clearly there's an issue there. Slavery mm-hmm. must be implicated in this game. And yet there is no reference. That word does not appear in any of the game materials I'm familiar with. Um, like many Euro games, Puerto Rico isn't particularly concerned with representing an actual history. A historical setting for Puerto Rico, I, I, I think, was intended to serve the same kind of historical setting of, you know, central German towns and turn in Texas or uh, a medieval um, cathedral like Pillars of the Earth or something like that. Sure. It's the setting. I don't think the intent was to draw attention to the historical setting so much as to have that setting function kind of in the background. The so function sort of as a mnemonic to help you understand a context for the actions you take. Exactly. So you're not just pushing pieces without any any reference to the real world. So this is a game that is uh, does not acknowledge slavery yet is about it. So it's very far on the left of this axis of the x axis, and it's a game where slavery is actually kind of rewarded. Like assuming right. that production happens through slavery, the only way that you can win in this game is to produce things using slavery. So even though Puerto Rico does not intend to be a pro-slavery game, the effect or consequence of its representation puts it uh, uh, low down on that y-axis, the effective axis where playing slavery is rewarded. Sure. So that's Puerto Rico. Um, There are other interesting examples. Uh, Glenn Drover's Age of Empires III as a game that is in that uh, European exploration and expansion model. Um, Glenn Drover, the designer of that game, uh, there's a statement in the rule book that expresses this. He he basically said, you know, I, I did not want to touch slavery here. Um, I think what he wrote is uh, there's just too much risk that the perception could be that the topic was being trivialized by having it in a game. Um, and he didn't want to reward players for, for using slavery. So that's, that's an interesting statement, and it puts the game in an interesting place. It does, it, it does not include slavery, and yet it acknowledges that slavery existed. Right. It just chooses to avoid representing it in this game, but it does so with a stated intention, whereas Puerto Rico does not. So this is a game I would put um, higher up on the uh, effective or y-axis. Slavery is depicted as a negative. Um, but the game doesn't do a lot beyond that to acknowledge slavery. In fact, it does nothing beyond that to acknowledge slavery at all. So here we're moving it over to the, um, to the left side of the x-axis, uh, where games don't really acknowledge slavery that much. Then we've got, um, uh, I look at three, <clears throat> excuse me. Sort of had a clump in the middle. Yeah, there's three games all in that expansion and colonization mold. 
um, Struggle of Empires by Martin Wallace that was recently reissued by Eagle Griffin Games in an updated version. Um, uh, that game, Colonial Europe's Empires Overseas, which I think is Stratagem, and Christopher DuPont is the co-designer. Um, and then Endeavor, Age of Sail, which is an update of an earlier version of, uh, of Endeavor. Right. These are all games that reference slavery, where slavery, it is, it is possible to play slavery. They acknowledge that slavery was part of the experience of European expansion and colonization. Yet playing slavery alone in these games is not sufficient to win. And in at least two of the three, um, there are penalties for playing slavery. So slavery mechanics are included. Um, often they give you kind of an early lead or a step up, um, but they are, are, are punished at some point, usually later in the game. Right. This is a really interesting representation of history because the, the history was sort of, okay, slavery becomes an important mode of labor exploitation in the new world, but the very economic success of that system leads to new forms of capitalism, which then sort of decide that slavery is a bad thing that must go away, as indeed it is. Um, and so I think what these games are doing is trying to trace or replicate something of that narrative. Slavery gives you an early lead, but it's punished later on once economies develop to the to a certain historical stage. Well, and for many years, Endeavor has been one of the games that I've used um, as an example of at least trying to present that art. Yes. Um, and I think what happens in, in Endeavor, um, there are these... Um, these, these, these value cards that you get. And once the cards are of increasingly high value as the game goes on and you gain more capacity, at some point, um, gaining new cards will obviate your old slavery card. And then you have to hold on to your slavery card and it counts as negative points at the end right. of the game. So there is a, a moral tone in these games. They object to slavery, but they do represent it. So right. these are games that I put pretty much in the, in the center of the horizontal axis. They acknowledge slavery, but they're not all about slavery. And sure. I put them just above even on the effective axis because um, while you can play slavery, slavery is, is, is punished, not enormously, but it is nonetheless punished to send that signal that uh, the game does not approve of the institution. You have another cluster that I'm excited to hear about because... Um these games have such different tones and results. Yeah. So the last cluster of games that are avowedly anti-slavery in some fashion, games that I put high on both the X and Y axis. So slavery is depicted negatively uh, and the games are uh, more centered around slavery itself. Uh, and so these titles, and they are quite different. We've got, um, let's see, Freedom, um, the Underground Railroad, which is uh, uh, the Academy Games uh, title. And in Freedom, you're not, you don't have a chance to play slavery at all. The game doesn't let you play slavery. The game compels you to fight against slavery. Uh, and you do this because your player position does not um, let you play slavery. Your player positions are all built, uh, they're all um, anti-slavery workers, African-American or white uh, abolitionists who are helping uh, enslaved people in the South escape to freedom and eventually get, get to Canada. 
So this is one solution for the problem of representing slavery in a game is you have players fighting against it in some fashion. The uh, next title is uh, Pax Emancipation by Phil Eklund, Sierra Madre, and now it's Ion, I think. Pax Emancipation is a really extraordinary game in a lot of ways. I've spent a lot of words critiquing the historical argument that Pax Emancipation makes. I think it, um, it's, it's, its history is, is highly problematic. Um, but in terms of game design, it, it's really remarkable. And, and it has this extraordinary ambition uh, as an anti-slavery game. This is a game where you are acting as one of three groups of um, British anti-slavery workers. And and you're you're not just trying to end slavery in Britain and its dominions. You're trying to end slavery across the entire world. Right. Uh, So it's a game that's as much about the sort of colonization of liberal ideas of freedom throughout the world as it is about the end of slavery itself. Right. And this is one of those games I, I, I distinctly wanted to talk to you about. Um, I was very flattered when you sent me an early uh, draft of some of your thoughts on Pax Emancipation, just to give people a scale, a sense of scale for your feelings. Uh, how many pages was that? <laughs> it's got to be about 50 pages of, you Was know. it only 50? I thought it was, I thought it was closer to 90. Um, but <laughs> maybe it was how 50. it's spaced, you know, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> the, the final form it's, um, it, it is available on my blog in a PDF form. Um, and, and yeah, I, I there, there was a, a lot to say, uh, about that game. Um, and, and I, I, because it's historical argument is problematic. I wanted to make sure that somebody out there had responded to it in a way so that players could at least have an, have a choice uh, about playing the game. They would have uh, some recourse to a different perspective. Sure. And, and I, I, that is a game I do want to return to. Actually, all three of these games in the top right uh, quadrant are games I, I would like to discuss with you in a bit more depth momentarily. So, so what is that third game? That third game is Tom Russell's This Guilty Land. Uh, and this guilty land is about the politics of slavery in the United States uh, before the Civil War. Um, there are two player positions. Um, one is uh, capital J justice, and the other is capital O oppression. And right. essentially, what you're doing in this game is trying to move um, the center of the electorate in your favor. You're trying to, the game imagines the um, American electorate is largely indifferent to the issue of slavery, which I believe is historically accurate. And it's about these two sides polarizing the discourse of politics and trying to pull those indifferent people into their camps. It's about evangelizing an indifferent public one way or the other. Uh, and what you're trying to do is, is gain those adherents so that you can gain representation in Congress, and then that helps you pass uh, laws that are favorable to your side, whether it's, uh, those laws are attacking slavery or upholding it, and that's the way you get points in the game. Um, the interesting thing about this game, so this is a game where uh, its position on this, on this chart is, this is the game that people question most. Did I put it in the right place? Um, mm-hmm. 
I put it on the on the upper right. So that means that it depicts slavery as a negative and it is very much concerned about slavery. Um, and some people have said, well, gee, you can you can play slavery in this game. In fact, you have to. One player position right. is dedicated to it. And that's true. This is a game where playing slavery, if you're playing oppression, you have to play slavery if you're going to win. On the other hand, the game does extraordinary work to signal to players unquestioningly that it and its designer, Tom, uh, are not in favor of slavery. So Russell has made these interesting moves that are designed to kind of insulate her from the criticism that um, the game is trivializing slavery or is promoting the play of slavery or, or, or something like that. That's the interesting work that I think this game does. Right. That's something I'll definitely want to return to, especially I, I feel as though this guilty land is a masterclass just in framing alone. Yes. Um, you know, you are not the South. You are not states' rights. You know, there's any number of ways you could lionize even unintentionally that perspective, but no, you are not those things. You are oppression. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no ambiguity as to how the author thinks about the issue. Yep. But it would be, it's, it would be, it would require willful neglect for a player to not get that message from encountering this game. Correct. Well, first of all, Patrick, thank you for outlining this. Uh, I, I think you did a good job of painting a word picture for all of us. I can, I can picture uh, the graph, and not only because I'm looking at it right now, um, <laughs> although it probably helps. So I wanted to talk to you about what what you see as the uses and maybe even the limitations. Uh, of this graph, how, how is it helpful? So my first question for you is, do you see this graph? Uh, how, how do you see it? Do you see it as a value system or as just one particular lens with which to, to view this canon of games about slavery? How do you view it? Yeah, this, <clears throat> for me, the, 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 what I hope to offer, this is really sort of directed to my students, uh, you know, first and foremost, but it, it you know, trying to share it with a broader world, but I'm, I'm trying to offer a, a set of analytical tools that students might use in thinking about how games do their work of representing history. Um, what are the what are the the ways that this medium of historical representation, board games, uh, how does how does it do that? Um, and so this is a. Uh, a similar graph could be constructed for um, historical feature films on slavery, for example. Sure. The Free State of Jones, Glory, other kinds of movies like Gone with the Wind could be on this chart somewhere. So this is really just a way of of trying to um, <clears throat> find a language or a vocabulary for thinking about the different ways that um, that, that, that games can represent the past. Um, how How strongly featured is it? is is slavery or whatever the thing is you're looking at um is a different question how 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 prominent a thing is in a game or a movie is different from the values that are brought to that whether the game or film endorses or seems to endorse or 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 attack the thing that is represented there so that's really the effort I've already seen a few people talking about the graph as though it uh, represents historicity or uh, even moral for you know moral value, and 
I've actually had a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction against that, um, just because of some of the games that you clustered on there, you know, Pax Emancipation and This Guilty Land occupying a very similar space, uh, despite their historicity being <laughs> radically, uh, you know, Tom Russell and Phil Eklund have very different perspectives on how you can even talk about history. Yeah. Um, and so I've pushed back on that a little. I, I like what you say about it being an analytical tool. Um, the way I've framed it when I've spoken to a few people about it is similar to something like the Bechtel test. Um, are you familiar with the Bechtel test? I, I'm not. I need some, uh, need some help with that. So, so the Bechtel test, just the, the short version, is um, that there is a cartoonist, Alison Bechtel, who in 1985 in her comic strip, uh, Dykes to Watch Out For, proposed basically a way to view movies. Uh, to await, and it's and this is not a value statement necessarily. You can take it that way, I suppose, but it's it's a way to frame discussing movies. So it proposed three rules. Um, so in the in the comic strip, it's about uh, two women who, just given the title of the strip, I presume are queer. I I don't know though. I I only really know the Bechtel test. Um, and as they're discussing it, one tells the other that she will not see a movie unless it meets three rules. The first rule is that it ha must have two women. Um, the second rule, they must talk to one another. And three, they, the topic of their conversation must not be about a man. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so this is a, a test to see if the, if the film is uh, representing women. But, but of course, once we start using this as a value system, it starts to break down because you know, there are movies that pass the Bechdel test that we would still say are not feminist. And there are movies that don't pass the Bechdel test that wouldn't necessarily benefit from passing the Bechdel test. So in a lot of film studies, we look at the Bechdel test more as an indicator of sort of broad discourse, right? The, yeah. the, the women who are being represented in film, how many women are getting jobs, how many women are getting leading parts, how many films are letting women talk about their interior lives as opposed to just talking about the men they're dating in a rom-com. Right. Right. Um, so I've been thinking about your graph in kind of the same light where it's, it's useful for showing us and helping us chart um, broad attitudes in board gaming, broad representations more than it is useful about uh, telling us about specific approaches. Yeah, this is really a, a heuristic. Um, uh, so it's, it's not intended to be a, um, <clears throat> a rigorous or scientific approach. It's more um, designed to open up some conversations about these things. And I, the work that it does, uh, I can see this in reference to the Bechdel test because it, it imagine um, a Venn diagram where all those three requirements are met and all the movies that could populate that intersection, like 10 different movies. I can imagine some of those movies, um, most people looking at them, looking at that movie and saying, that is a feminist movie. That is a strongly feminist movie. It's making a lot of yeah. political points. And I can also imagine those same three qualities being in a movie that is incredibly misogynistic. Right. right. So there's a distinction between um, some of what we might call the kind of mechanical aspects, right? How, how this film is set up, who the characters are, uh, and, the, and the actual values that it tries to express. 
And similarly with games, um, what, I, what the, I'm trying to do with this chart is distinguish between um, uh, the, the mechanics in a game that represent slavery and the evaluation of that, the value orientation of the game toward that thing. Yeah. Because those two things are, can be quite distinct. Do you, do you feel like that's the primary uh, both use and limitation of the model that you're proposing? I think that's the primary use. Um, the limitation is that there are probably other axes that could be put on here. How a game represents uh, anything historical, like slavery, um, there's a huge wide variation in that. Um, there is mechanical complexity. So Pax Emancipation is a, is a pretty heavy game. There's a lot of moving parts that interact in complicated ways. Um, this Guilty Land is obviously built on a very different mechanical model. Freedom is a cooperative game. Um, I guess Pax Emancipation can be cooperative. Um, so so there, yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's lots of different mechanical ways of representing slavery. And we could uh, parse those profitably, probably. There are probably useful conversations to be had about the different ways that that can happen. Oh, it's representing it politically versus socially or economically, or, uh, you know, even it's using cards instead of chits, or it's a role player, or, you know, whatever, whatever that may be. Um, uh, no matter how it's doing it, though, the critical thing for the representation for me is, is that it is thinking about slavery uh, very consciously or very subconsciously. So mm -hmm. it's it's either, you know, Pax Emancipation and Freedom and This Guilty Land on the one side and Puerto Rico on the other. Um, that to me feels like an important distinction and probably the most important distinction uh, in a value-free analysis of these games, simply yeah. how much they seem to be interested in representing the thing. Well, one thing I find encouraging about it is that it's not a straight line, but you can draw a line uh, that maybe meanders a little bit uh, between release date and the position of games on this chart. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, I, I think um, I wrote about this a little bit on the blog when Struggle of Empires is uh, uh, had its new edition. Um, they dealt with slavery in a different way. Ralph Anderson at Regal, Eagle Griffin Games was very conscious about, about this and um, acknowledged uh, the approach. I think they moved from the calling it the slave trade to the Gold Coast trade, uh, which is a little bit of a softening of the representation, but it's spoken mm. about in the rules. So there's a, 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 an intentional gesture to uh, address the issue. So, you know, people are going to fall in a range of places on whether they like that or not, or whether they think that's good or not. But 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 that's what the game, you know, the, the reissue made an intentional attempt to do that. Um, I'm not sure that anyone would make Struggle of Empires today um, and represent slavery in the same way. And um, I suspect that's probably a good thing for most of us. Sure. Now that's that might I think actually that's the only one I haven't played. So I can't uh, comment. It, it's it's a Martin Wallace classic, uh, really good game. So uh, uh, it, it plays well. I recommend it. Um, you know, if if and playing slavery is a possibility. It's it's certainly not a winning strategy. You could never win a game purely based on that. But um, but uh, it is a possibility. Now, when uh, when you published your article on this graph, 
uh, a few people had raised questions about where some other titles might fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that you have not played uh, Jeff Davis or Imperial Struggle I have in, played, the, in the last month. I, I, I played Jeff Davis two nights ago. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah. Have you played that one? <laughs> Um, no, I haven't. I, I have played a number of games by Ben Madison. Um, in fact, just today I released a podcast uh, with him. I interviewed him about his most one of his most recent games before Jeff Davis called The Mission, which is about the first thousand years of Christian history. He has been on my mind quite a bit, kind of uh, in, in multiple dimensions. So how did you find Jeff Davis? Um, I know that the rules may indicate some people have said i haven't read them uh may indicate some sympathies for the southern states yeah it's um so i'll have to check out the uh i'll have to check out your podcast that that's interesting and i'm looking forward to being in touch with ben and asking him uh about this design Mm -hmm. uh it's the first game of his that i've encountered and it came to my attention because as i you know, been been writing about slavery in games uh you know folks have have suggested it as a possibility um you know, so I bought it, I picked it up and, um, you know, it's great for pandemic days cause it's a solo game. Right. Um, and I mean, it, it's, it's a barrel of, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a barrel of laughs cause this includes slavery, but it's, I mean, it's fun as a game. It's, uh, really, okay. Uh, I call it chromatastic. There's just all these nice little bells and whistles that add all kinds of historical flavor and specificity. Yeah. Is Chrome. <laughs> so, Mission is one of my favorite games from last year because, as I said, I, um, my degree is in late antiquity. And so playing the Mission is like reliving. It, it's like this two-hour session with my education. It's like a best hits album. That's great. <laughs> it's like uh, Peter Brown put in get board game form or something. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. That's great. Yeah, it's – it's uh, so – I was, you know, the first thing is I'm just sort of intrigued because I've never, uh, I've never played a game like, like that. I've never seen, you know, mechanics do quite what Ben gets them to do there. So a lot of me was just kind of intrigued by that. Um, but it does, uh, of course, represent slavery. It's, it's like this guilty land in that, um, it's possible to play slavery in this game, um, the temptation is extremely high. Um, I, my first game, I decided I'm not going to play slavery. And then the second game after I got my uh, rear handed to me in the first one was that uh, I, that's what I did right out of the box. Um, Slaves are just a a resource that are enormously valuable. Um, uh, And I I can't imagine winning without using them at all. Um, So here's a game where, do they function as currency? Is is like a, a bonus currency? Is that how it's how it? Yeah, functions? it's like a it's like a a resource. So um, you want to do things like um, um, uh, restore supply to your generals so they can keep fighting the next turn, and you can do that by spending raw resources. There's like a money track. Um, uh, you might be able to uh, pay for something by reducing one of your economic levels, or you can use. Uh, the slaves. So um, you, you have these little counters, each you know, two pips on one side, one on another. So you you know it's a two. You flip it, you've burned one, and then you you lose the whole the whole thing. Um, and so uh, they're a crucial resource. They're a, a kind of currency. Um, I do note that 
you know, there's, they sort of run out or at least they ran out on me. So, um, uh, you know, the reality was that slaves played this really important role in um, sowing internal division within uh, the Confederacy. And, and that's, I don't see that represented particularly strongly. Uh, it's more the general notion that enslaved people are a resource that you can use. Mm-hmm. So how, just out of curiosity, how does he handle the topic sensitively? So one thing I've learned about uh, Ben is that he has quite a uh, sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And, um, there is sometimes a disconnect between um, his intentions and the things he'll joke about. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. So mm-hmm. in the mission, um, the mission is fascinating. So have you played any of the States of Siege games where you are defending on lanes and I haven't. Okay. So, so this game, you could picture, um, you could think of it as spokes on a wheel where the center is Jerusalem. So you begin and it's the end of the apostolic age. It's, it is the apostolic age. You begin with apostles, people who knew Jesus and they go out and convert people. And eventually the game's uh, system shift and it starts pushing back mm-hmm. um, with pagan barbarians. And eventually with the rise of Islam, which actually comes from within in the region of Jerusalem. And so you're kind of being hit from both sides. Hmm. Well, so the apostles, when they, when they go out, you flip over these tiles that show who you're trying to convert. And it'll say, you know, now you're trying to convert scholars or you're trying to convert you know, slaves. You know, hmm. it, it also contains slavery. Um, one of the tiles is women because uh, early, the early Christian movement found a lot of traction with women. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there's a little joke in there where uh, the apostles are unmodified, but when the apostles are eventually martyred and replaced by bishop tiles, if a bishop moves into a space and flips over a woman tile, the bishop retreats a space. Wow. Um, <clears throat> which is a fascinating bit of commentary. Um, and it turned out it was a little unintentional about you know, how the apostolic movement shifts to uh, reinforce Roman norms Hmm. uh, about women, that it becomes less uh, what we might term progressive, even though that's a bit of an anachronism. Right. Fascinating. And and the way he presents it is just hilarious and maybe even a little offensive in the rules, but then in the game, it feels very appropriate. So, so how, how, how sensitive and appropriate does he handle that issue in Jeff Davis? That's a good question. And I think the one thing to preface any conversation like this is that everyone is going to have uh, a highly individual take on this. And, oh, yeah. you know, the sum of our takes will probably cluster toward the center and then there will be, you know, extremes on 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 the wings. Um, and so everyone, this is a game that I can imagine it offending. Um, it's a game where, as I said, you know, you can use, you can use slaves. Um, but the rule book, um, uh, speaks to this in some way. Um, and there's, a, another mechanic in the game where, um, you're trying to defend plantations. It's another one of these track systems where union forces are just bearing down on the Confederate heartland from six different directions. Um, and if the Union forces capture one of your plantations, um, freedmen are produced. So um, there's a, a different a different 
box where um, basically what's happening is is that slaves are being freed and put into the Union Army so that they can serve the you know the cause of your opponents. Uh, and 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 uh, see if I get this right. The rule book says something like so: you'll you'll put your your freedman token uh, into the pool where and there's a background image of Frederick Douglass there, the great black abolitionist, and it says. Yeah. Uh, you will be staring into the. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna blow the phrase, but it's like you're staring into the dark eyes of Frederick Douglass or something. Okay. So a clear, you know, it's it's light, but it's also a clear statement about the designer's kind of moral position on this. Okay. Um, so he he works. I would say discursively within the rules to make sure, or at least to try to convey to readers and players that he himself does not favor slavery. I think he admits to a slight pro-Confederate bias, but it's not about slavery, of course. Um, So it's a game that it's kind of in the middle on these things. It clearly gestures towards his own sentiment. You know, he's trying to acknowledge that slavery is not a good thing, and yet you can play it. It's not nearly as clear as, say, this guilty land in yeah, sure. separating the designer from the, the value system that's represented there. Yeah. Well, thank you for indulging me in talking about a game you weren't prepared to talk about. Um, well, I was happy to talk about it. And it, it, it really is just an interesting uh, design and does some, some really interesting work. So why don't we talk about the games uh, that I did warn you about? Sure. Um, so since... The freedom, Pax Emancipation, and This Guilty Land are all placed in the same quadrant. Why don't we talk just a little bit about um, how they how they approach the subject in their own ways, um, maybe some things we appreciate about their representations, and maybe some things we don't appreciate. Uh, how does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds great. Because I, I think that the, the key difference in, in these games, um, at least on kind of a mechanical level, is that they approach the subject from from very very different perspectives so um you know freedom is is uh, a co-op where you're playing against slavery um it is uh effective as a euro game so what we get is kind of an educational game that also uh adheres to modern board game standards and quality mm-hmm. um it it uh, is a game where my my you know let, let me start by saying that this game was was pathbreaking right it did something that no other game before it did so if I have a critique of it it's it's not a criticism it's just noting things that we might keep in the bank as we think about future game designs um, but it's a as a game that tries to restore agency to the slaves it actually is is limited because. Um, slaves actually have no agency. The people who have agency are the player positions and they are uh, black and white anti-slavery activists. So it's interesting that in a game that's kind of, or in a subject that's ostensibly concerned with with, uh, re-granting agency to the the slaves, they become literal pawns in the hands of, of the players. So I had a, I had a, you know, I, I just think that's an interesting thing. Um, my other critique of the game is that you're not actually destroying the institution of slavery. You're moving enslaved people out of the South and into Canada where they will be free. Those are individual manumissions that might have a kind of collective consequence on the institution of slavery, 
But what really killed slavery was the Civil War. And even though the game goes into the Civil War, it doesn't really have any mechanism for attacking the institution itself, um, which I just thought was an interesting sort of elision. Right. One of the things that, and and I I appreciate the way that you've prefaced this, because for me, freedom uh, was also such an illumination of what not only what games could do, but the direction we were going to be heading with games uh, across the next few years. Um, one of the things that frustrated me about it when I played it and has actually grown to frustrate me more, and again, I'm prefacing it with, um, this was the first game I played that took slavery so seriously. Um, it really, the sacrifices really mm-hmm. bought. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I have written about that that is an example of uh, ludonarrative dissonance, just in the sense that you can, so to give some context, there are different slave catchers um, that will move toward you and potentially capture your slaves and send them back to their plantations. Um, You can move a slave so as to nudge a slave catcher onto them in order to permit other slaves to slip past. Which to me was such a frustration because I I struggle to think of a situation in which uh, the characters in that game acting as abolitionists would not accidentally, uh, but willingly use half manumitted slaves as uh, as bait. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting question. Um, I... I'm not sure. So here's here's what I think about that. Um, the game puts you, it gives you some difficult moral quandaries. And I've seen this with students. It's like in order to free five, you're going to have to ensure that one gets caught. Yeah. And it's a terrible feeling. The question then is, is that um, an appropriate representation of the dilemmas that the anti-slavery movement faced? Um, in specifics, probably not. There probably weren't too many instances where, um, uh, a conductor on the underground railroad was like, I can take you three, but not you. Um, but it's not hard to imagine that that might've been the case, nor is it hard to imagine the abolitionists themselves coming up against a range of moral quandaries that might be in the same league, um, such as choosing uh, which plantation to free people from, something like that, along those lines? I think it might be about, um, so think about fugitive slave rescues. Once those enslaved people ran to the north, um, they were hunted down by by slave catchers, uh, particularly after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Um, there are some celebrated instances of um, abolitionists attacking jails to um, free um, uh, suspected fugitives. Um, Sometimes those attacks succeeded, like in the Oberlin-Wellington rescue. Um, And at other times they failed, like uh, Anthony Burns, uh, who um, uh, was uh, remanded to federal custody in Boston uh, during the presidency of Franklin Pierce, I think it was 1852. And so that that was a loss, and um, the the people of Boston um, decorated, you know, shut their windows and and put black crepe over everything, you know, as as the federal marshals led Burns out of town. Um, there were 
enormous infights among the abolitionists, uh, debates over strategy and tactics. Uh, to what degree do we work with sullied politics? How hard do we um, seek the money of people who uh, aren't necessarily uh, there for the slave? Um, uh, you know, so there there were a lot of moral quandaries that came with the anti-slavery cause, um, and I can see the case that the kind of moral quandaries that players confront might be considered analogous to those. So rather than being a choice of deliberately sending somebody uh, to their doom, to their recapture, it's a choice of, uh, of parallel situations. Do we risk our lives on something that seems doomed? Do we, uh, do we operate with somebody who we don't know as well? Situations of that nature. Yeah. And, and think of it this way too. Uh, think of the alternative. With a game... Uh, does not confront players with those difficult choices. Um, In the interests of softening the depiction, of making the depiction more palatable, um, it's actually easier. Um, The criticism of that game would be that it insufficiently represents the, um, you know, the, the, the problems and the danger of that time. And in the process, trivializes those issues. So, for each of these moves, there's a kind of a counter move. Um, and, and when you get to this realm of representation, there's so many different perspectives and approaches and thoughts on it that uh, it's, I think it's important always to imagine what the other side would, you know, would, would be on a particular issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so these games have a real dilemma. Um, and it's the same as films. Like how much do you want to actually depict the horrors of slavery? there's a point at which nobody wants to see that movie or play that game anymore. Yet if you underplay it, you know, so think of 12 years a slave and it's, I mean, that's a very difficult movie for me to watch. Right. On the other hand, you've got, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Django Unchained where um, the director is, is, is much more liable to the criticism that, you know, somehow it's a cartoonish or trivial representation of slavery. Sure. This is very, very difficult terrain for creators. Now, almost on the opposite end of the spectrum is a game. Uh, so, so where freedom is sparking these little quandaries, this guilty land uh, presents a similar but very different tonal argument. Um, would you like to introduce us to this guilty land? Sure. So, um, yeah, as we've discussed, this is a game where um, uh, you were, one player is compelled to play the uh, slavery position. Um, it's about politics, and uh, Russell has stated that she d- chose that depiction uh, because of her subject position. You know, as a, as a white creator, did not feel like representing slavery on like the social level or a more intimate level was appropriate. So, you know, stick to the realm of, of politics, and I think that's important because. Uh, it, it finds a space of power equality, right? If you're if you're if you're depicting um, the enslaved and those who enslave them, you've got a huge power imbalance, and it's difficult to sort of imagine how a game uh, works with that. But when you're talking about the forces of slavery and anti-slavery in American politics, they went at it hammer and tong with a kind of rough equality for you know a good three decades at least. So that's an interesting choice. Um, 
The other thing about this game that I think is fascinating, this is the, some people criticize this game for me for putting this game up, up on that part of the spectrum because they said, well, you can play slavery. I think that this is a game that helps us understand the difference between um, the way mechanics make arguments and the way words in a game make arguments. So this is a game that I call this an anti-slavery game because the words and the rule book and the title, uh, other, other, other clues throughout loudly proclaim that this is an anti-slavery game, even though the mechanics themselves do not punish you for playing slavery. In fact, compel you to play slavery. Right. So you've written a wonderful article diving into uh, three types of rhetoric and examining the way that they intersect with this guilty land. Um, which I think is a very illuminating piece, in part because I think there's so much to draw out of this guilty land. Um, Tom, as a transgender woman, I know has had a number of strong feelings about this. For instance, in her uh, reworking of that game system as The Vote, which mm-hmm. is about the suffrage movement in America, um, the introduction concludes with a powerful line um, that I believe you would uh, use as an example of discursive rhetoric, where Tom, rather than mincing words, simply turns to the camera and says, this game is meant to make you angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a line in This Guilty Land where it's like, uh, 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 one player plays justice, one player plays oppression, and you're not supposed to like it. You know, I mean, something to yeah. that effect. <laughs> you know, that is the point. And, and like what's so critical there is the intent. We get revealed to us the intent of the creator here. So um, we don't, uh, I, I mean, we might still take issue with it. You know, there's ways of working with that, but, um, but at least we are given that strong cue as to how we as uh, consumers of the game should approach it. Right. So the the three types of uh, rhetoric that you outlined were discursive, ludic, uh, which I understand to be uh, the play mechanisms, and also aesthetic, which this game hits you right in the face. Uh, First thing you'll notice about it is uh, its image of Gordon, also known as Whipped Peter. And this is the image that prompted me to reach out to Tom and say, I have to play this game. Um, and I think even Tom has described it as agitprop. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is meant to unsettle. It's yeah. taking. Uh, so, do you would you like to use uh, this perhaps as a segue into describing how does this game succeed in light of those yeah. uh, rhetorical models that you're proposing? Sure, sure. So, um, um, discursive rhetoric, aesthetic rhetoric, ludic rhetoric, these are these are fancy words for for pretty straightforward concepts. And what I'm trying to do here is think about the three useful realms um, that any medium or in this medium in particular games use to make their cases. Uh, we're used to thinking about mechanics in games all the time. Um, so that's that's ludic rhetoric, right? So this is my riff on procedural rhetoric, which is Ian Bogost's huge contribution to um, to this field. Um, yeah. I understand procedural rhetoric to be include a lot of different data systems. So I propose ludic rhetoric to think more specifically about the way games make their make their claims. Um, and and so this describes uh, the the design architecture of the game, the player positions, who represents what, uh, whether we're cooperative or competitive, you know, those kinds of big questions, as well as the mechanical systems in the game. So the system for representing 
uh, undecided voters, the system for tracking your success or failure and passing laws. These are all mechanical components of the game. Um, and so ludically, the game compels you to play both sides roughly equally. Discursively, it has to loudly proclaim in words um, that it is doing that it does not endorse this uh, as, a, as, a, as a model of ethical behavior. Um, yeah. And so this guilty land, well, that's a title that comes from uh, John Brown, the militant abolitionist who launched his failed slave uprising in October of 1859 in Virginia, Harper's Ferry. Yep. And this is from a note that he passed to the jailers just before he was uh, uh, went to the scaffold to get executed. So here we have the title is embracing, you know, the statement by this abolitionist. Uh, we've got the aesthetic or visual uh, rhetoric operating uh, with the, the figure that you mentioned on, on the cover. Um, the front page of the rule book has the famous image of Preston Brooks caning Charles Sumner, mm -hmm. the anti-slavery senator on the, on the floor of the Senate in 1856. Um, so there are loud cues uh, in words or discourse, you know, the discursive, um, but also in the aesthetic or visual uh, that tell us that this is a game uh, that does not endorse slavery. At the same time, though, and the reason why it does that, I believe, is because mechanically it you must play slavery. So if we were just thinking in terms of, of, of mechanical rhetoric, this game or the ludic rhetoric, this game would be... Uh, low on the y-axis. This game would look a lot more like Puerto Rico, where you have to play slavery in order to have any chance of winning. What's different, though, the reason why separating these rhetorics is useful is that the, the ludic rhetoric can, be, can compel you to play slavery, but the discursive and aesthetic rhetorics tell us why you are doing it and what it means in the designer's terms. Specifically here, it is to state unequivocally that the game does not endorse slavery or playing, you know, playing slavery for fun and profit. Right. So that's what we get by separating these three things is we see that the game is operating in, in, in different modes in each one of those three registers, but it needs to, because uh, I mean, like think of this in a normal war game, you would not have the designer loudly proclaiming that, um, you know, um, the bell guy in uh, falling sky are better than the Romans, you know, like it just wouldn't, sure. <laughs> wouldn't happen because it would, it would be a tell and, and players would start worrying if the game is favoring one side or another. So usually the stance of the designer is completely neutral on these things. You can't do that in a game about slavery unless you are looking for a lot of criticism. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about it is just how clear and crisp it's twin theses are. Uh, and a lot of that, I believe, has to do with the fact that um, Tom just tells us what her intent is. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure you read about a billion term papers. Um, and how often are you frustrated when there's not a clear thesis? And so you're trying to pick through and what is this person saying? Yeah. Um, what exactly is the argument? Well, Tom tells you right up front, the the argument here is about the Civil War was inevitable. There was no compromise available. And furthermore, compromise was poisonous. Right, right. So 
the game is telling you that it is it is depicting something it is depicting something horrible uh, be warned and that's the gamble i think that russell is making that if that statement is clear enough uh, players who might be shaky about playing it for the ethical quandaries that it raises they will feel safer uh, knowing that um, the designer is aware of this, the game's aware of it, and um, uh, there's no chance that they will be participating, or there's a, only a low chance that they'll be participating in in behavior that they themselves find morally morally questionable. Right. Now, you know, some people will never be satisfied with that. Some people will no doubt say, I don't care. Uh, it's still a game about slavery. I won't play it. Um and that's a completely legitimate, valid personal response. And, you know, that's something Tom has even acknowledged explicitly in the rule book and, uh, and in other writings about the game. Right. Yes. Uh, Tom has a great deal of latitude as her own publisher. Yes. Uh, which I think is something that behooves certain war game and, uh, simulation publishers and designers to think about that, uh, there, there are certain advantages to being an underdog. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, th- and of, of course, this is not a game that was ever designed to, you know, be sitting on the shelves of Target at Christmas time. Um, this is, uh, this is kind of a niche product. It's, it's um, a kind of a exploration. It's a, it's a sort of ludic essay. Um, and it's, it's posed as that. And I think this is important to remember. Um as, as board games grow, we, I, I think it behooves us all to become a, a little bit more nuanced about the place individual games occupy on these, on these spectrums. Um, in the same way that not all films uh, want to take particular issues seriously or intend to take them seriously, um, uh, some, some do want to take things seriously. Um, there's a sense that uh, games are kind of always trivial or it's it's just a game, that kind of mentality. But we don't say that about films. There are some films about history that are very light and there are some films about history that are very heavy and very dark. Um, right. And I think that that's, that's completely appropriate for cinema. Um, and I think it should be completely appropriate for games. As long as consumers have the information at their disposal to understand what's in that box and what it's supposed to mean. Um, I think that there's a wide range of possibility. One example of that, I think uh, that I applauded Tom for making this decision is when she made the call that this game would not be sold at conventions initially uh, because she didn't want people who, you know, you're at a convention, you're, you're feeling good. You're seeing your friends, you're seeing what you can maybe pick up. And then you run into that picture of uh, Whipped Peter. Yeah. Th- that could be a real buzzkill. So rather than uh, create this possibly triggering incident or something that could cause uh, certainly some consternation, if you've got empathy. Um, yeah. it, mm-hmm. I, and I, th- I believe Tom actually reached a compromise where uh, one of her distributing partners could sell it, but it was not to be displayed. It was something that mm-hmm. uh, people who you know, knew what Blue Panther was uh, producing could go and request it, something like that. Yeah, that seems that that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think of an analogy like, oh, you go to a, a fan con or something and everyone's kind of, you know, it's got a light tone, everyone's dressed up and cosplaying and stuff. And then all, all of a sudden, you know, you have to encounter something that is completely out of that out of that vibe. Um, 
So I can I can I can imagine that um, uh, such as conventions not permitting military hardware. Th- that that yes right that kind of thing, um, yeah. But the fact that it is still available somehow within the market, uh, properly contextualized, um, I, I I think is a is a is a good thing. Um, it would you know saying that we can't make a game like that is saying that we can't make a film like Twelve Years a Slave or Free State of Jones or something like that. Right. Well, speaking of proper context, um, I, I was hoping that you would read to us all 50 pages of <laughs> your thoughts on uh, Phil Eklund's Pax Emancipation, but we're not going to have time for that. So instead, uh, why don't, would would you like to introduce it to our listeners? Sure. Um, Pax Emancipation is a game um, that is set in um, late 18th, early 19th century uh, world. Uh, the map board is made of cards and it represents the entire globe. Um, the player positions are British parliaments, British philanthropists, and British merchants. Uh, and each of these has a particular player power and a particular interest. But uh, what you're really trying to do is uh, go across the globe, free slaves, and cause revolutions in these spheres because um, it's a game about building uh, interesting little action chains. And um, it's a game where you want to do everything at once. And so f- opportunity is at a, a real high value. And uh, so sparking revolutions helps you uh, free slaves, uh, end the institution, uh, clean up anarchy, do some other kinds of things. Um, it's a game that is built on ideas. So um there is a literal marketplace of ideas. Each of these ideas, like in this sort of, was that a, a Bentham was a marketplace of ideas? I forget who, or is that John Stuart Mill? Um, and there are cards representing individuals. These uh, come from across the globe. So there's West cards and, and East cards. Um, some of these cards represent slave revolutionaries like Sam Sharp, um, or uh, they might represent uh, intellectuals. Um, across the globe, there's figure, a lot of figures from the European Enlightenment. Um, and these figures give your agents extra actions. And I mean, the system is, is considerably more complicated than that. But that's, I think, what's, what's important to know is that you are, you are working with ideas, claiming them, syndicating them so that you can get more actions and claim more ideas. It's a, its model of history is idealist rather than materialist or economic. Uh, it's a game that poses uh, the main work as um, embracing uh, liberal values and then spreading them across the globe. One well, for me, the most uh, interesting aspect of the entire design is the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, that every region in the game, I don't remember, are there 10 regions, something like that? That sounds right. Um, every region has a number of color-coded barriers uh, standing between you and uh, ostensibly total emancipation, uh, changing the ethical system of whatever place you're going into. Except the barriers aren't the same for every faction, Um, which I find fascinating. So this is... um, just to contextualize this personally a little bit, uh, I am an enormous fan of the PAX series. 
um, both the work of Phil Eklund, but he tends to design um, with co-designers. So uh, people such as Cole Worley, his son uh, Matt Eklund have worked on some of the PAX games. I, th- I believe PAX Emancipation is the most Phil Eklund of all the PAX games. I think it's the one he did mostly on his own. Interesting. And um, this is now normally as, as a game critic, I have a rule that I review the game as I'm presented it. I don't try to fix it. I don't uh, say this game would have been better if I try I try to evaluate what I was given. Mm-hmm. Um However, Pax Emancipation is the most I have ever done theory crafting on a game, uh, just because I'm so fascinated by um, certain arguments in it that I think are very good that are buried. Hmm. Uh, and, and hopefully we can get into that and you can tell me whether I'm crazy or not. So you noted earlier that this is a very problematic game, uh, especially in its model of history. I agree. So what makes this model so problematic? Wow. Uh, let's see. 50 pages, right? Okay. Uh, let me try to reduce this. Read your, sec- read your chapter first. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to cut straight to it. Phil is a, is a, a, a hardcore libertarian, uh, and a particular kind of libertarian. Um, and he's a big fan of the Enlightenment um, as it basically – stood in about 1780 um things that happened after that that don't seem to fit the you know rationalist enlightenment mode that he favors um figures like hume or rousseau um don't fare very well in this game um and the it's the, the my biggest problem with the game is the way it understands slavery itself if you open this game up and set it up you will see that there are in each of these spheres, there are uh, slaves to emancipate. There are these cubes that you're trying to free up. Those go into your victory pile. Those are points for you. The number of slaves in South America is two, and the number in China is like 10. Mm-hmm. It's a game that where the real work of liberating people isn't happening in the Atlantic world most of the real work is happening in the Eastern world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, I think that Phil is guilty of a considerable amount of what Edward Said called Orientalism. Right. A certain representation of, quote, the East uh, as a place of backwardness, um, as a mysticism. place. Go ahead. Uh, mysticism. Yes, yes. Uh, Eastern mystical counterflow is a, a, a mechanic in this game. Um, the figures who, uh, who the, that the game extols who are Eastern are those uh, who are the most Western of the Easterners. So right. it, it's a game that replicates some, some really nefarious notions um, about uh, what things were like in the non-European part of the world. This is a game that's really about colonizing Enlightenment ideas. Uh, and and uh, there's a degree to which freeing slaves is incidental to that to that goal, right? Um, and and that's look, it, it it would be fine if that's what you, you know, I, I can imagine a game that tries to do that. It's it's the unwillingness to imagine the critique that would come at that. It's the the reticence to sort of say, oh, okay, I think you have a a point there, and let's think this through or talk it through or 
or or whatever. It's this kind of this is the only way the world is. This is the only way history was. Phil believes that the enlighteners, as he calls them, had um, rational bases for understanding morality, which they didn't. I still don't. If anyone does, if anyone can show me the math on good and evil, I'd be happy to see it. Um, but that's essentially the game's perspective is that slavery is not just chattel slavery, but all forms of uh, bondage and unfreedom that you know the game decides it doesn't like, and that the real work of players is to spread Western ideas into the benighted East. And I have yeah. a real problem with that. Yeah. One of the things that uh, struck me about this game is its desire, uh, which I feel is a real tension within the design. Um, first, the, and I'll be upfront that the thing that I like about it is that to me, the game functions very well, and you have to ignore almost every word of discursive letter, as you've called it, in order to make it work this way. Um, the game to me succeeds basically as colonialism 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, that you have come up with reasons that colonialism 1.0 was bad, and now you're going to colonize everybody with those reasons. That's right. Uh, which I which I find fascinating, especially because even in the game, uh, the three factions you have have different ideas about what qualifies as enlightenment. Yeah. And eventually, they are going to wage conflict, not directly, not a bloody conflict, but a conflict of ideas and. Uh, area control effectively to see which ethos is ingrained in foreign peoples. Yeah. It's uh, extraordinary. It's I mean, and the interesting thing to me about that. <clears throat> so um, yeah, each of these spheres that you uh, cause to revolt is going to wind up in a particular end state and we'll have, if it has no barriers left that favors um uh, I think the, uh, one of the positions, if it has certain kind of barrier, it favors another. If it has certain barrier, it favors another. So the the world at the end of of the game, the world of revolutions that you've produced, can look like different different things. That is a kind of flexibility in outcome that is uh, much more flexible than what Phil himself seems to describe when he talks about it in in, in words. So there's a way in which the game permits possibilities that Phil himself doesn't seem very interested in, uh, in endorsing. And, you know, that is a uh, perceptive thought, Patrick, because that is something that is true of nearly every PAX game. Hmm. Um, have you played the other entries in the PAX series? I have, I have to say I have not, unfortunately. Um, so kind of somewhat infamously, for instance, PAX Perfuriana, um, Eklund's footnotes, are about libertarianism. The game itself is almost a repudiation of libertarianism uh, and an encouragement of government intervention. Um, Pax Renaissance, rather than being uh, as stated about the uh, preeminence of uh, Western capital in making everything go, making the Renaissance happen, tends to be surprisingly cosmopolitan. Just over and over, these games don't make the arguments that he wants to, they're, they're not fitting into the round peg. Um, How do you think uh, Pax Emancipation compares to those? So Pax Emancipation is by far the most complicated um, and it's by far the most opinionated, but, but I, but I agree with the sentiment where you're going that 
it just doesn't make the argument it thinks it's making. Um, and in order for it to get to where it thinks it's going, it has to make so many bad sub arguments. Um, so what I was saying earlier about tension is that he has this one idea, which is what I believe the game pretty much argues about colonialism 2.0. But then he has his textual argument about rejiggering the definition of slavery mm -hmm. and the value of capital <laughs> and you know what what is there any post-colonial you know there no one has any agency in this game to determine their own ethic there's no post-colonial value whatsoever in this game and there are so many intriguing tensions um and i Another thing that is an interesting tension for me is I love the idea, um, you know, looking at certain um, civil rights movements that end up, um, you know, who is an ally, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, and sometimes your allies are temporary and sometimes they are acting out of self-interest and lay the groundwork for the next civil rights struggle. Yeah. Um, that happens in this game. It's, it, it's, it's true. I, I think the, <clears throat> the point about colonialism 2.0, I think, is very is very well taken. Um, there is uh, no qualification uh, to the good in, in, in game terms. It's always good to um, impose ideas on other places in the world, and it's yeah. always benign. And there's never a problem with that. Um, and the problem is I don't see that as conflicting so much with the game as much as conflicting with the actual history, right? So um, the notion seems to be that, that once European colonial powers impose Western ideas on the rest of the world, everything is, is fine. And of, of course, that's not, that's not the case at all. Um, um, just, you know, the, the Royal Navy, yes, it did. It did. Uh, there was the African squadron, which helped shut down the international slave trade. But the Royal Navy also um, uh, compelled Chinese uh, opium into Chinese markets. Right. Right. So, it wants to have its cake and eat it, too. Exactly. Exactly. It's I mean, that's, you know, colonialism, even after slavery, uh, could be uh, incredibly nasty. Um, right. You know, Churchill's neglect of, of, of India led to mass starvations. Um you know, the Belgian, Con I mean, we can just go on endlessly about the horrors of imperialism and colonialism. And none of that is, uh, has, has a, a space in the game at all, which is, uh, right. it's just, so the game is willing to celebrate achievements, um, without investigating critically the cause of what made those achievements necessary. Is yeah. that the, fair characterization? I, I think so. This is a game that if, if such game tech had existed, you know, in the enlightenment, this is the game the enlighteners would have made of themselves, right? It is hugely <laughs> triumphalist. Yes. Um, and it just swallows, it drinks their Kool-Aid, you know, wholly. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's highly problematic as a historical representation. I'm going to ask you the crudest possible question. Do you enjoy playing a game like Pax Emancipation? Uh, that's a great question. And I mean, I don't think I could do what I do if I didn't, you know? I mean, um, I, I, I understand the kind of dangers in consuming these sorts of representations of history. Um, I, I, I might flatter myself to think that I'm equipped to um uh to to think about them critically um uh doesn't mean i necessarily am or that there isn't any danger 
but um, in in the same way, um, you know that that we would uh, want to embrace uh, films or fiction that does a lot of different kinds of work. Um, I don't think that things shouldn't be made. Um, I just think that it's important to uh, bring our full critical capacities to bear. And what I'm interested in doing um, with my students is uh, thinking through and developing those analytical tools that let us do that responsibly. So yeah. rather than just say if something should be you know, boycotted or not appear or something, I'd rather say, okay, it's here. What do we do with it? How do we understand it? How can we counter that form of speech if needed with our speech? So speaking about all of this speech, how are games useful as uh, discourse, uh, polemicism, uh, didactism, as education? Yeah, wow. $64,000 question. Um, you know, I was going to threaten you by saying for the next two hours, we're going to <laughs> debate the, uh, dis- the definition of socialism or something. There we go. Um for context is is what happened to your thread uh about the graph on where uh, slavery lies is just uh everyone arguing about the definition of slavery uh and socialism and communism and every term yeah other terms came up yes and uh and the mods flew in <laughs> well, um, i was I didn't read it at the time, actually, because I, I saw it and I came back after the weekend and it said something like 120 comments. And I'm going, oh, no, I'm never going to catch up on this. I'm going to leave this for another day. And then I came back the next day and it was it said 10 new comments. It, kind of, it took care of itself. I went, I went off to do uh, – I, I, I was working on posting the pieces on This Guilty Land. I interview with Tom and and then review of the game itself. And and I came back and it was, you know, all hell had broken loose. And I'm like, I leave you guys alone for a day and, and it's gone full Eklund. Um, so, uh, but yes, that, I mean, and, and that's, that, I think it's illustrative of there are dangers in these things. These are not neutral issues. Um, people have huge investments in the uh, history that is represented in these games. And um, um designers and creators have responsibilities to um you know to the to the people they're trying to sell games to and those people have um uh uh, full power to reject or object to things that are in those games um so and that that's in fact the kind of lively discourse that a democratic society should be practicing um so um you know that that game the thing about Pax Emancipation is that it's such an incredible game. It shows so much about what is possible to do ludically. Um, And yet its history is so problematic and its messenger is a little problematic as well. Yeah. But in terms of uh, uh, your question, which is, you know, what is the value of these things? I think about that a lot. Um, And I, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is make the case to, the academy, make the case to my colleagues who are history instructors and, and others in education about, you know, what is the role of games? What is the point and purpose of games in this? Um, and I think there's a, a bunch of different answers to that, but they come down to um, focusing on, like, there are a lot of bad educational games. We've all probably encountered, uh, 
you know, chocolate covered broccoli to use the new media studies term, right? These games that are supposed to be fun, but they're really just crap. You know, they're, yeah. um, what we've got now are games that are ludically, their mechanics, their procedural rhetoric are making these claims. And that's important because that is the unique thing about this medium, right? That is the thing that games do that films don't do, that novels don't do, is, is, is make us undertake these procedures. So I'm really interested in figuring out what that procedurality, what is the benefit of that in our learning? And I, I think that at the most basic level, what games do is promote a kind of fluency with their historical subjects that is invaluable in the classroom. And by that, I mean, uh, like my, my students uh, are all students, you know, it's like we're sort of geographically challenged these days. It's kind of hard to remember where everything is, you know, yeah. which states were slave and which were free, this kind of thing. Playing games makes you fluent or helps make you fluent with their subjects. And this is when I was a little kid. Like we all know where Kamchatka is because we played risk, not from any other reason. Um, right. And so there's a, at, at least at that level, we become familiar with people, names, places, dates. It, these become part of our working vocabulary so that when we encounter those concepts in more academic forums, um, we're ready for them. They're not so alien. They feel a little bit more comfortable. And we have some an interpretation perhaps to bounce off um, of what we read because we've played it in a game. Right. So I was discussing this on social media very recently. And um, even on board game social media, I was surprised to get a little pushback. Um, I, I had the opportunity to speak to a classroom um, about the value of board games, which was a delight because normally that's not what I talk to a classroom about. Mm. Um, but even on board game social media, when I mentioned this, I was surprised at the amount of pushback I got from people saying, well, board games can't teach you anything that a book can't teach you. Right. And I, I was, I've been thinking about that for the couple of weeks since I've learned a lot of things from board games. And I think that one of the things board games uh, are actually exemplars at takes mnemonic level representation and fleshes it out more into models. Yeah. Because I think about understanding, for example, um, the Gallic, the Gallic war of Caesar. Mm -hmm. I understand that better for having played falling sky even though i have read the complete works of julius caesar now i'm not saying that that supplants it right <clears throat> uh, and i i i don't know why anyone thinks that in a classroom setting that we would anticipate replacement right um but but if you're teaching the gallic wars it is sure helpful if students know you know who Vercingetorix was and, and, and where the Averni were and, you know, all these kinds of things, just it, 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 it cannot hurt to, unless, you know, the game is setting it up wrong. Um, but it, I think it helps us with that, with that comfort level that is often the entry point into a deeper understanding of things. Right. When I think of something like uh, Tom Russell's work with both the, this guilty land and the vote, uh, that it draws attention in a very tangible way 
because you're sitting there calculating through the possibilities, the difficulty of passing laws or uh, having a constitutional amendment made. Yep. It makes that very tangible where just raw numbers before couldn't do that. We could read, uh, take Freedom of the Underground Railroad. We could read um, William Still's book on the Underground Railroad or the reminiscences of Levy Coffin or you know a white abolitionist. You can kind of... <clears throat> experience that way, um, what some of these tensions and moral dilemmas were in the movement. It is different when you have to, uh, when you have a bunch of cubes in front of you and you have to sacrifice one to save three more. That is simply a different experience of, uh, of the past than what you could ever get just by, by reading about something. Yeah. And ultimately if games do their job, right, the mechanics themselves do this so that there's a way in which the mere playing of the game familiarizes you with an interpretation that you might not even know that you're getting. For example, in this guilty land, well, when I teach the coming of the Civil War, I'm, I work really hard to help students understand why the anti-slavery movement had such a hard time. Why, you know, because slavery's wrong, slavery's bad. There's no question about these things. Why would anyone find it otherwise? But if you play this guilty land, you will get a sense of the sturm und drang, the back and forth. You'll get a sense of the center of the electorate and what it was, was required to pull it in one direction or another. That game, um, it, it works. I would assign that along with um, uh, academic pieces describing Derviger's law on the way the two-party system works. Uh, I mean, like there, there is academic material that puts fancy words to what you experience simply by playing that game, even if you're not thinking about those issues. Yeah. To me, that's, that's when games, history games really sing is when you get these, um, the, these moments where the mechanics are pushing you in the direction of the interpretation. Um, my favorite example of this is one you might appreciate, Time of Crisis. Have you played that one? I love Time of Crisis. It's such a great mechanic that you're vying for those emperor points. You know, yes. it's just this huge scoring bomb that everyone is going after. And it's just, it, it perfectly does this little simulation of that, of that fight for the emperorship. You understand for a minute uh, why everyone was trying to do that. Right. Yes, I love that game. Um, and talk about a game that has tremendous feedback between its systems and its intended message for so little overhead. Yes, yes. That, and that is the sweet spot, I think, uh, is... How do you, I mean, because we all, you know, in the 70s, I, I wasn't a hex encounter guy. I played some of those games, but, you know, I had friends who had ASL set up on their pool tables forever or um, oh, boy. campaign for North Africa. We knew a guy who had that. Um, and like the problem with that is that it's an argument that very few people are going to encounter because they don't have four weekends, you know. Right, um, right. We, the, the, the beauty of, of, you know, sort of Euro style games is that they're made to be completed in an evening. So you can get a history game knocked off in two or three hours. Um, and if the rule set is, um, if the load isn't so high, um, you know, it's, it's people will actually play it. Um, but the key is that, are, are those mechanics that, that, that the layering of lots of different systems, um, 
on top of each other that all function well together in this sort of seamless package that makes the point. I think that's the real sweet right. spot. Well, and that's one of the reasons I've had so much success using the coin series with people who do not like heavy war games is that they learn the system once. And then with just some modification, we can break into something like 10, 10 or 11 volumes now yeah. of totally different history. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't require all that much modification. Yeah. Yeah. Coin is coin is a really great model for that. I've taught um, <clears throat> Liberty or Death in my games course about the American Revolution um, by Harold Buchanan. It's a great game. I, you know, coin is um, for my students, it's pushing the, the, the top, like we can't get mm -hmm. too much heavier than that. Um, but I, I think the other thing that's happening is that systems like coin are making us more comfortable with procedurality. Games are asking us to do things now and sort of encounter a kind of procedural complexity that probably couldn't have gotten away with 20 years ago. Our tastes are being slowly kind of re-engineered in, in good ways. Yeah. We're becoming more and more uh, open to what games might ask us to do. Well, the coin series, for one thing that I've had uh, just great success with is in contextualizing how uh, historical events and happenstance impact policy. Um, that how often is it that an accident is what spurs great change? Hmm. Well, all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the, in, in, in many cases, our, our agency as political actors or military actors is not as much as you think. Yeah, yeah. And those games do such a, a beautiful job of kind of unfolding a story. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think I could ever design <clears throat> anything that heavy, but the, the, the way the cards drive those games, um, you get a story, you get an unfolding of the past and you play it multiple times, you'll get different unfoldings of the past and they're not going to match the one that's down in the history books. But in the process, you start understanding what the elements were that, that changed. Where were the, where were the, you know, the key points where history flowed one way instead of another? Um, that's another educational value of these games, the counterfactual, the counterfactualism that is built into them. Is there any is there any specific historical event or or topic that you would like to see gamified? The Haitian Revolution. <laughs> oh yeah, dying for a Haitian Revolution game. I know uh, there are a couple efforts underway in uh, in various places. I think somebody's working on a on a uh, coin oriented version. But um, uh, you know, the Haitian Revolution is is re the only um, modern slave rebellion, the only slave rebellion I'm aware of in history that succeeded in the sense that it um, uh, destroyed the system of slavery, took over the government, and established a black republic. Um, uh, in academic circles, the Haitian Revolution only in recent decades has been getting its due as one of the great Atlantic revolutions. Um, and so there's a lot of new scholarship on this. There's a lot of interest on, in this. It's a very, very complicated uh, set of historical events, so I'm not sure how easy it would be to game, um, but it's one I think that is dying for treatment. I am impressed, Patrick, that you answered like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Usually when I ask a question like that, I get some hemming and hawing for a while. <laughs> well, Patrick, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I've really appreciated your willingness to, and openness 
uh, in speaking about a topic that's very difficult. Well, thank you. I think that, um, look, I think that games are games are important. And the, 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 the critics you've encountered are like, well, a game really can't do that or games are too light. Um, you know, I, 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 I would repose, um, uh, was it Baudelaire? Uh, yeah, Baudelaire, somebody who said, what is it? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Well, I think the greatest trick that games ever pulled was convincing the world not to take them seriously. Right. There's something True. about, you know, games are supposed to be oh, they're trivial on their light and all that kind of stuff. And I think because of that, we have not subjected them to the kind of, you know, rigorous treatment that we've um, uh, applied to other media. And I think those days are over. And I think we are the golden age of board games is now also going to be the golden age of board game analysis. Yeah. Well, before we go, is there anything else you would like to add or plug any projects you'd like to discuss? I will refrain from uh, self promotion, and uh, <laughs> instead, this is this is your chance. <laughs> I can't think of it. I'm terrible at hustling. Um, no, but thank you, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for Space Biff and for this podcast. I think you're doing really tremendous work, and uh, a lot of people appreciate it. Mm-hmm.